Portland is a baseball town. Our secretary didn't have anybody on the phone. <laughs> there was nobody on the phone. They were just egging me along. So they bought a little short chubby guy in with the name Peters and put him <laughs> in my place and sent me to double A ball. Two fans, one mission to bring Major League Baseball to Oregon, fueled by Guardian Games and Athletic Field Design. This is the Diamonds and Roses podcast. Without further ado, your host, Ben and Dave. What's going on, Ben? <laughs> Just trying to have a fun time, Dave. Well, I think we're getting ready to have a fun time. Where are we? What's going on we're, here? We're back yet again with Guardian Games. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Guardian Games. Appreciate it. He's bringing out the pro wrestling voices. I don't know how much more of this I can take. Yeah, we got ladders and tables and chairs. What's going on? It's about, about to get real in here. That's what he's saying. Yeah. So, uh, what, what's the plan? What's the plan for this episode? Talk plan for this episode is to continue on with our fan of the podcast. And oh. It's Andrew. Andrew. Hey, yes, guys. Andrew. Hey, thanks Glad for having me again. You. Yeah, thank you. Andrew? Yes. Take it away. We got a special guest. I need you to do. Do us a favor. Yeah, our special guest, welcome, Rob Nyer. Uh, it's great to be back. Uh, the only thing better than one visit to Guardian Games, of course, two visits there to Guardian is. Games. <laughs> My favorite store in Portland, not joking. Andrew, yes. Uh, we left off with Rob getting ready to join or joining Bill James and uh-huh. Stats. Why don't you take it away from here? Let's talk to Rob about his time with Bill. Okay. Yeah. So uh, you're in stats. Uh, so what was like uh, working with Bill and what did you do like every day? First, the second question I'll take first because okay. it's the easy one. Okay. Um, I did everything. Uh, <laughs> Bill had one research <laughs> assistant. Mm-hmm. And so when he needed something done, it was me. I spent a lot of time in the library look, looking at microfilm, doing research for various things we were working on for Bill's books. Loved the research time. It was sort of my first exposure to hours and hours looking at microfilm, which for a lot of people would be boring. For me, it was fun trying to find these things and seeing all these old stories. Um, oh, a treasure hunt. Exactly, and I enjoyed it. I was lucky because we have. I lived in Lawrence. We had a the Kansas library that was a great resource, um, and you know, I've loved libraries since I was a little kid. So this is I'm being paid to hang out at the library all day. Sure, pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, so I would do that. Um, I worked on stocking Bill's library, ordering books, paying the bills. I babysat a few times Bill's mm. kids, which I loved. Rachel and Isaac, that was a blast. Um, anything Bill needed done, often research, I would do. And I was fortunate because Bill gave me the opportunity to write. I think I wrote something, some things not very well for a book uh, the, the first year I worked for him. Um, the second year, I was probably a little better. He gave me a few more opportunities. He actually put, actually put my name on the back cover of the book with a few other contributors. So you know, he was incredibly generous, um, even though a lot of the things I wrote, by the time they made it to print, I didn't recognize them hmm. because Bill had gone over them. And Super made them editing. <laughs> good. But I did learn a lot. Bill gave me a couple of great writing lessons. He would not sit me down and say, Rob, this is how we write better. No, he would take something I'd written and with in red pen write the most horrible things about it but you know what it hurt a little bit but it helped a lot Mm. i still remember vividly a few of the lessons that he taught me every writer every young writer 
need someone telling them this is how you do this. This is a basic thing. This is how you do that. Um, I know there's a great chapter in. Uh, you ask writers what their favorite book about writing is. That there are a few stock answers. One of them is Stephen King's book on writing. Mm -hmm. I recommend it to anyone, whether they want to write fiction or not, anything. And there is an entire chapter in that book that is essentially Stephen King, his his ode to an editor at a newspaper that he worked at. When he was 16, 17, he wrote stories about high school football or basketball games, sort of a typical entry-level job for aspiring writers. A small-town newspaper, somebody's got to go cover the high school football game. And he reproduces in the book a story that he wrote, or the first draft of a story he wrote, that then his editor at the newspaper had marked up. Most of what you need to know about writing decently is in those markups. And Bill did the same thing for me. Uh, and a lot of those lessons stuck with me. Now, I, I, don't, I would never suggest that I was a good, a lousy writer on this day, and then after reading Bill's notes, I was, I was still making the same mistakes. But the fact is that because they came from Bill, and I had so much respect for him, um, they stuck in my head. And over the following years, uh, they helped. Um, so anyway, I, did, I also wrote, wrote for Bill, um, which was great. Um, now, what was it like working for Bill? That's a tougher question. It's one of those things, um, as I've learned, a, a, as you probably know, Dave, um, it, when you're in an intense experience where you're learning things all the time, um, time can get away from you. It's, mm -hmm. I've learned since that it's like having kids. You sort of think, well, I'll write all these things down and I'll remember everything perfectly, but you're so busy doing the thing yep. that it can be hard to carve time out for yeah. making notes about the thing. And I certainly wish that I'd kept a diary of my time with Bill, but frankly, it didn't even occur to me, even though now, of course, what, I'd love to know what I was doing day to day with Bill and what this conversation mm -hmm. was like and what Bill had typically for lunch when we went out. I don't remember any of these things. Um, so I can't. You really, internalized it, but yeah, remembering it's another thing. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it, this is 30 years ago now, um, almost. Um, so um, it was, generally speaking, working for Bill was a fantastic experience. I learned a ton. It was hard sometimes. Bill was not always easy to work with, which he, he will he will admit or would have admitted, did admit back then. Um, um, our schedules didn't always match up, so I would often be in the office in the daytime while uh -huh. Bill was home sleeping. Then he'd come <laughs> at, come into the office at four or five o'clock and work all the way through the night. Uh -huh. He called it the book crunch when he was putting finishing books, and that could be a process that lasted two or three months, where Bill's hours were completely different than mine. Um, were you expected to work late as well, or I wasn't. Um, Bill didn't have that expectation. I did work late because I enjoyed it. Uh -huh. um, I think, on balance, Bill would have preferred me not be in the office when he was in the office mm. because I was oh. a distraction. Oh. And the last thing he wanted when he was in trying to finish a book was me walking into his office and asking a question about this or the other. I remember specifically one time I was in the office working or watching TV or whatever I was doing at 7 or 8 o'clock at night, and he was in the work, and he just finally walked in, walked through the, into my office. I had my own little office where we were and said, would you please go home? I think that only happened the once, and maybe I got the message, or maybe he just wasn't in that mood very often. But, but uh, uh, for the most part, only during those book crunches, our schedules wouldn't overlap. So, but there were other times when 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 there wasn't a book crunch, and Bill and I would both get to the office at 
eight or nine o'clock in the morning and work all day and go out to lunch and talk about baseball or whatever it was. So uh, we had some great drives. One time we drove to Wichita to see, um, you might remember a pitcher named Andy Bennis. Um, yeah. Goes back a ways, but Andy Bennis was- Pitched for the Padres. Padres most. Yeah. He was the number one draft yeah, pick one year. Andy Bennis, big guy. Yeah. Yeah. Prototypical pitcher. Yeah. Uh, I remember we drove down to Wichita one time to see his, I think, his last minor league start. Um, so just you know, being in the car with Bill James for the two hours it took to get to Wichita, or three hours and watch the game, and um, just to get a chance to sort of listen to Bill talk um, about baseball and life and all the, hear, hear about his childhood, those were all incredibly valuable. Um, uh, and, and again, remember, from our last episode, I'll repeat this because it's so unlikely and sort of is the linchpin of my everything that's happened to me since then. If someone had asked me when I was 18 years old or 19 or 20 or 21, what is your dream job? It was work for Bill James. So on one level, every single moment that I was working for Bill was my dream. That's cool. And there were times when it was rough. The one thing I, specific thing I remember is that I was very frightened of Bill. Um, uh, he could be frightening. Uh, and I, I wasn't always frightened of him. We had a lot of great talks, but there were some things that I just wasn't comfortable about. And one of them was asking Bill to give me money to put in the account the, for, for the office expenses. I don't know why I was afraid of doing that, but I was. So at one point, the, most, the, the worst I ever felt was uh, the time that uh, I hadn't, I'd been afraid to ask Bill for money and the phone bill came due. And I continued to be, not ask him for the oh. money. Oh, no. So, and guess what? You know what happened when you don't pay the phone bill? Yeah. They cut the phone off. So, uh, he was probably not happy. Well, I, I, I think the phone might have been cut off for a few minutes, but it was a small town. And I don't know if you've ever spent time in small towns, but small towns all have, well, at least they did. Everybody knows still everybody. Yeah. Well, there's that, but there's also the small town has a small building where all of the phone yeah. Yeah. Uh, routers and equipment are kept. And there's somebody who works in that little building. Yep. To, keep, to maintain everything. So I literally walked a block to the phone building and knocked on the door. There are no windows in these phone buildings, by the way. Guy comes to the door. How can I help? Well, I'm in the office over there, and I'm way behind. We didn't pay the bill, and what do I need to do? He said, well, I, I, need, a, I need this check for whatever you guys owe. And so I went back to the office, swallowed my pride, and walked in, and Bill said, Bill, I feel terrible, but... I need the money right now so I can go deposit it into the bank. Or maybe I asked Bill to write me a check to the phone company. But anyway, that's how that worked. And he was fine. You know, he didn't like yell at me or anything. I just felt like an idiot. Um, but that's how intimidating Bill could be in some ways. It wasn't his fault. It was me not having the, lacking the confidence to, to talk to him about things like that. So it wasn't always pleasant. The other thing I remember, here's a, here's a I, things come back to me when I talk. Bill, like a lot of authors, was not always pleased when the book was finished because when often for a lot of us not so much for me anymore but to some degree it, it's still it's it's the case with me too the the thing that you create is never as good as what was in your head yeah um, and i think that that bill suffers from that probably more than most people because he has such high standards um so the first book that i did with bill uh, the 1990, it was just called the baseball book, 1990. Um, 
this was again a dream come true to have my words my writing be in a book the books arrive at the office big boxes and boxes of these books and i am desperate to see this book because my name's in there right yeah the things that i wrote are in there bill won't open the boxes he's messing with you Lit- no he just <laughs> he just can't bear to see the book tortured artist got it yes yeah, yeah. uh and it's literally true that i did not see that book until it arrived in the bookstores a week or two or three later. So I'm going to the bookstore every day hoping the book has come in because Bill won't let me open the boxes of them that are sitting in the office. How many boxes did you have? I think Bill had ordered special boxes. The book came out in paperback in the stores, but Mm -hmm. Bill had ordered, had had produced specially uh, some dozens of hardcovers to sell to people who... You know the people who really wanted a hardcover version of the book. Um, so for whatever reason, Bill wouldn't open the boxes, wouldn't look at the book. So you know, ultimately, he did, and we started sending the books out to people who had ordered them. And I got to take some home and and give them to my mom and my, my dad and all that stuff. But but it is literally true that the first time I saw one of my name in a Bill James book was when it finally arrived at the bookstore. And I'm going every single day to see if it's if it's come in yet. So that's a working with Bill James story. Wow. Most of them aren't nearly so sad, but uh, <laughs> but that's that's one of the pops into my head right now. Very cool. And what was it like for that first experience going in on day one? I know we're taking a, just a slight step back, but going in day one, working for this guy who you were saying is like this is my dream job. What was that feeling like walking in that first day? And that is the question that it perfectly exemplifies why I wish I'd kept a diary. I have no memory. I have a really vivid memory of Bill calling me on the phone and telling me he wanted me to come work for him. Uh, I remember how happy I was. Um, I remember calling friends and going over to my friend's apartment. And and, I mean, this was the biggest news imaginable for me. Um, I remember uh, telling my my boss at the roofing job that I was going to have to quit a couple weeks later because I had this job with Bill James. But but. I don't remember anything about that first day. It's the sort of thing you think one would remember, but um, I do remember it might have been day one. Um, Bill said, well, here's our office. He'd rented an office in this little town called uh, Oskaloosa, Kansas, which was sort of halfway between where he lived in Winchester and where I lived in Lawrence. Um, It was just a bare office. It was a big office. He had his office space. I had my office my room, and then there was an entry area. It had been sort of a doctor's office with, with a reception area, but it had no shelves, had no desks, we had no computers. So I think the first things that we did was to take care of those things because I couldn't do any work without a computer yeah. or a desk. So I believe we drove all the way to Kansas City uh, and looked at some computers. Uh, I remember we drove to a lumber yard someplace and bought boards, long boards. Uh, Long boards, uh, the, exactly the length of this, of the room, the 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 width of the uh, reception area, and a bunch of bricks. So there was a long process where we sort of stocked the office. So that was probably the first week was just going around and uh, uh, setting up the sh- buying the shelving things, um, the bricks and the boards and the desks and the. Uh, I think Bill told me to go find my own office chair somewhere, and I bought a fifteen dollar chair at a junk shop or something. Um, so I think that was the first week. And then once we got all those things figured out, then, then Bill started saying, okay, you need to do this. Read this thing I wrote. 
um, go make sure we're, we're here's this catalog of baseball books by the six that you think we should add to the library that sort of thing um, so it's funny I hadn't thought about that first week literally ever but I think that's how it went what was the thing that you think you, you took away most from your time working with Bill well I spoke earlier about the things Bill taught me about writing and really that was it I wish I could say it was that I learned how to deal with people better but it probably wasn't that because I was just dealing with Bill uh, Bill's just one person and not a typical person. Um, what Bill taught me about writing that's always stuck with me the most, and I've tried to carry this through and I've tried to impart to others, is things don't happen to people. People do things. Hmm. And that's it sound, sort of sounds like don't use the passive voice. You probably heard that a million yeah. times when you're oh, yeah. being taught writing, right? Use yes. the active voice. Right. But that's not what Bill was telling me. What he was saying is that people do things people are active it wasn't a writing lesson it was a it was a life lesson now of course we know that things do happen to people if you're sitting in your house and a tornado picks it up and carries it to to the land of oz you didn't do that the stupid tornado did it okay write it from the tornado's perspective then um having things happen to people isn't interesting um you know now one of the words that we hear that we didn't hear back when I was growing up was agency. People have agency. Um, yes, we're, 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 we're all to some degree the victims of circumstance. You're thinking free will, right? Right. Yeah. And it isn't, that, it isn't that free will determines everything, sure. but when you're writing about someone, that should be where you start because people doing things, people making choices is much more interesting than uh, this guy was playing shortstop and he batted 212 and got sent down to the minors. Well, that almost makes it sound like it was an accident. No, he earned his way to the minors by hitting 212, mm-hmm. right? In fact, that's mm-hmm. a, basically an, an actual example uh, from something that I was writing. There was a player named Bill Allman, a uh, sh- uh, shortstop in the 1980s, 70s and 80s, and uh, Bill asked me to write a, a short article about Bill Allman for, for, for one of his books. And I was basically writing that, you know, this happened to Bill Allman and then this happened to him and poor guy, he got sent down to the minors. No, he, he earned his way back to the minors because he didn't play well enough. And that was sort of, that was the lesson that stuck with me. Not that specific thing, but a, a way to look at the world, at least when you're writing about the world. Um, there's another way to write about the world, which was, that, you know, maybe Bill Allman's, uh, maybe Bill Allman's coaches weren't very good right mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe he was stuck with terrible parents I don't know right. but in the absence of that knowledge let's assume that he earned his way back to the minors um, uh, because it's more interesting when people do things and when things are done to them hmm. interesting so um, you know you're working for Bill and stats you you're now kind of further into your career with them at what point did you start kind of wavering on the the idea of maybe applying or working for ESPN? Well, that I fell into that. Uh, very quickly, I'll give you the progression. So after four years with Bill, um, we talked about a different project that I, I was really interested in, and that sort of fell through. I would have been working with Bill, but it didn't really work out. And I think Bill was happy to have me stay on and keep doing what I'd been doing, but the work he was doing at that moment he was doing a, a books that were basically about uh, rating players for fantasy baseball. Hmm. 
which didn't really interest me. About what time is this? This is 1992. Gotcha. Uh, he did three books called The Baseball Book, 1990, 91, 92. Um, but the 92 book was written in basically ni- at the end of 91. So now we're in ni- 1992, which is my, my last year with Bill. And I worked on a book with him called The Player Ratings Book, um, which was essentially from cover to cover a fantasy guide rating players. Um, and I just didn't find the work that interesting. Um, and I also felt that four years was long enough. Um, not because the job wasn't still fun, because it often was, but because I felt that I'd been given this tremendous opportunity to work for Bill, and I, I, I sort of felt selfish. Should, shouldn't someone else have this opportunity? Hmm. Um, um, and, you know, also, this was all made much this decision was made much easier for me because um, I had been maybe Bill had been approached first but had, had declined the offer I don't know um, but I had been approached and asked to write copy uh, for the backs of a baseball card set um, and it paid ridiculously well for me at the time it was not a lot of money in retrospect but it was a lot for me so I thought you know this is a chance I could take this job this is enough money to keep to, for me to pay my rent for two, three months, um, let's do something else. So I thought I would try to uh, make my living as a freelance writer. Um, and so I, I quit my job with Bill, uh, incredibly amicably, Bill was great about it. Um, this was, I quit at the end of 1992, so I had four full years. Um, worked on the baseball card stuff, that was great. Um, and then the jobs ran out. I got a couple oh, yeah. of other jobs, freelance jobs. Um, um, didn't really pay the bills, uh, was reduced to stealing my uh, roommate's pancake mix to eat a few times. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty bad, it really was. My, uh, I was the, the, the funniest thing about that time was that there was a stretch where I couldn't afford food and my mother had loaned me her gas credit card so I could at least get, drive, drive to places. And I would drive 25 miles away to a gas station where I knew nobody would see me buying food at the gas station hmm. and just buy, you know, staples, milk and cereal, whatever it was. Um, and when things were basically to their breaking point, um, I applied for a job with Stats Inc. And they hired me uh, in part because, well, not in part, almost in, completely because I'd been working for Bill because Bill was uh, involved with Stats, was a part owner of the company. So I, so I, um, Took the job with stats, working on publications, edit, doing a lot of editing and writing. Um, moved to Chicago for that, um, and was there for about two and a half years. And um, felt overworked, uh, underappreciated. You know, was that was that a research job or a production job in terms of writing? Almost completely a production job. Gotcha. Okay. Um, writing essays, okay. ed- editing and writing essays for books about baseball, but also football and, and basketball. Um, and I enjoyed it, um, but I just, again, I felt overworked and underappreciated. The pay was not good. Um, uh, and this other opportunity came along. Um, uh, I just I, I was approached by some people who were starting ESPN's website. At that time, it was not owned by ESPN or Disney. It was owned by a company called, uh, by a company called Starwave, which was owned by Paul Allen, hmm. who, of course, is well familiar to everyone in mm-hmm. the Northwest. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, he had started this company, Starwave, as a multimedia company. They did 
not only websites, but also video games and other things that I can't even remember now. Um, and this was so early in the, in the history of the, the internet that the sports leagues had no interest in building their own websites. Hmm. They didn't know how to do it. Right. Nobody had that expertise, right? Um, Starwave was developing that expertise. Music industry was way ahead of sports industry in that, in that regard. I'm sure that's true, yeah. yeah. Um, but I think that also the sports leagues didn't quite trust the internet yet. Yeah. Nobody knew what, what it was going to be. Mm-hmm. So uh, the sports leagues, and I'm sure other people, uh, other big entities were, were hiring outside developers to build their websites. And not, not just build them, but run them. So I believe Starwave, we did uh, NBA's website, nba.com was a Starwave website. Um, ESPN's website was initially called not ESPN.com because ESPN was worried that it, this web thing wasn't going to pan out necessarily. So let's not call it ESPN.com. Oh, wow. It was called ESPN Net Sports Zone for some reason. So they wanted to throw off the association. A yeah, bit. a little yeah, bit. A little bit. Yeah. Make sure we don't. It's not exactly the same as us. It's, it's just another thing that's sort of like yeah. us, but but uh, we weren't ESPN employees. We were Starwave employees. Mm-hmm. Um, so they actually hired me to come on and be the fantasy editor because they thought that fantasy sports were going to be a big part of their business model, which I think was actually true. Um, mm-hmm. I just wanted out of my job as stats, quite frankly. Um, I didn't think fantasy editor sounded like a, like a lot of fun, but I get to move to Seattle and see a new part of the country and, and, and get some stock. Frankly, mm-hmm. this is when everybody, the thing back then was, ooh, stock options. Yeah. I wasn't getting that at stats. Um, I was getting, going to get it at, at Starwave, so um, so it's a chance to for a new. An, it was a, it was a, a a new opportunity with potentially a payoff with the stock option, which seemed like. And a, at that point, you're willing to take a risk because why not? Right, you know, I was getting a raise it. and sure. stock options, and who knew what would happen no. uh, in Seattle? Um, this was in the mid '90s, '96. '96. Yeah. So that was like kind of like the internet. Boom. That's right. The internet. It was right in the middle of it. it was when yeah, everything was happening. Everybody wanted to work yeah. in the internet, um, uh, and um, so yeah. And and I didn't really enjoy the fantasy editor part of it. Um, what I really wanted to do was write, and so not long after I started, I started writing a column which was purely fantasy oriented, and it was a few hundred words. It was nothing. It was just like dashing off silly little two sentence comments about baseball players. Um, most of my time was the editing part. Uh, the great thing about working for a company like that at that time, maybe still, I don't know, was that sort of do what you wanted to do, uh, define your own job to some degree. Not a lot of oversight. Yeah. There wasn't, and it's funny because on one level, there, there was a great deal of oversight editorially because when they started this organization, this ESPN's website, all of, all of us were in Seattle. There was nobody back in Bristol. It was all there, and we had a newsroom, and we had people who had a number of people who were hired straight out of newspapers. So they sort of thought about it as this news operation. Um, but I was on the fantasy side, which was completely different. Yeah. So they didn't really, the editors weren't really bothering me. So I start writing these fantasy columns. they didn't know what to bother you about. <laughs> right, and I wasn't yeah, part of the news operation. Yeah. I was on the fantasy side. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, I started writing these fantasy columns, and then they started sort of segueing, becoming just Rob and I writing about baseball. And what they really became, although we didn't, this word hadn't been invented yet, what they really were was were blog entries. 
Yeah. They were very personal. A few years away from the whole blog. I was writing in the first yeah. person. Um, I was I was responding to uh, readers via like they would I would post my email address, my actual email address, mm. which I don't nobody does anymore, yeah. but but I did then. Uh, people would email, I would print their email and respond. So they were sort of like a letters thing. It was a very bloggy sort of format. I didn't, they, there weren't comments, but they were their emails. It was basically the same thing. Um, so, and I would never say that I invented blogging. That would be silly. Andrew Sullivan is probably as close to anybody I can think of who did that. But, but a lot of the elements of what became blogs were in my early columns. Um, and by the time that the editorial staff realized what was happening, that I was basically generating newspaper-style columns or what became blogs, nobody wanted to say, Rob, what are you doing? Stop it. Um, and I was able to sort of stop editing too. So within a year or two, certainly less than two, I'd gotten rid of the editing stuff. Kind of an organic evolution. Right. Yeah. Um, and I never really thought about it that way. I didn't think, I'm going to stop editing tomorrow. Sure. It just sort of happened. How, I don't really remember. Um, and then all of a sudden, I was writing five columns every week, which is what I'd always sort of wanted to do in the back of my head anyway, because who wouldn't want to just write about baseball? Yeah. Um, if you can get away with it, why not? That's like the dream job is, is, is writing columns. Yeah. It doesn't take that long. You have a lot of free time. Enough free time, it turned out to write books. Um, so that's how that all sort of came about. And I was at ESPN for 15 years. Now, when you were starting to write these articles and you were writing like five days a week, you know, what was your coverage of the Mariners at the time? I mean, did you did you have like a little more access to the Mariners? You know, it's funny. Like local? I did have access. Um, I had a press pass, and the first, I think it was the first year I was there. Was, I think it was ninety. Some of the glory days, the mid nineties. It was a really fun time. Great team. I was not, Kingdom. Yeah, Kingdom. It was late, it was, late Kingdom. Yeah. Yep, and I went to a lot of games at the Kingdom. I went. I sat in the press box the first year, especially. I was in the. I went to a lot of games. Sat in the press box, but. Here's the thing, uh, I was, and still am, fairly introverted. And I'd never done any reporting. I'd never done much interviewing at all. So I didn't use that access the way I could have. It's one of the big regrets I have about my career, maybe the biggest, is that I had this tremendous access. I could have been in the locker room every night. I could have been working on stories where you talk to players. And I didn't. I would go to the ballpark, I would keep score, I would go home. I usually wouldn't even write about it. I would just mm. I just wanted the frankly the press pass so I could watch the games for free. <laughs> and then a couple years later I actually bought season tickets. Cuz I didn't like just watching games from the press box. I actually preferred sitting in the seats and still do. Uh, the press box is not a fun place to watch a game from mm. unless it, a little it, too far removed maybe. It is. And yeah. you can't cheer. You it's just it, look a little stuffy, I'm sure. The Safeco Field press box is great. And I enjoy watching games there, and I do occasionally, um, especially if I'm by myself. But I really enjoy sitting in the stands. So I got season tickets at, I think the, I had them at the last season at Safeco, uh, maybe the last two seasons, and then the first season. No, I'm sorry, the last two at the Kingdom, and then the first season at Safeco. Um, but I didn't use that access, and ultimately I stopped using the press pass um, because it just became silly. Like, why am I even there? I'm not talking to the players. <laughs> it wasn't until years later that I began got fairly comfortable talking to players and now I enjoy it it's the most fun I have now is wouldn't if I don't really enjoy writing columns not that I really do it not that I do it anymore but I don't miss it what I really enjoy now is actually talking to players and interviewing guys and 
uh, I, for my most recent book, I talked to dozens of, of players and baseball people, and that was the rewarding part of it. So, um, the the enjoyment I take from the work is completely different than it was 20 years ago. Yeah, hmm. and like I mean, that's one of the reasons why I like started this podcast. And I don't know if I've ever talked to you about that, but uh, that's one of the reasons why we started it is because we really want to like talk to the individual like yourself. We want to hear these stories and, and have that one-on-one interaction with people because we want to make it so that way, you know, the individuals can hear like our Andrew that's listening to the podcast or others that are out there. They they can hear you as an individual. They can hear you talking to us, and hopefully, we're we're hoping maybe asking the questions that they've always wanted to ask, and they're like, hey, well, what about this or what about that, just so they get to know you more as a as a person. So, and, and, and we really, that's kind of one of the things that we were hoping to do this summer is to kind of talk a little bit more to the, some of the players and, and kind of just hear from them as, as people. Um, but, you know, I'm glad you really shared that, that little piece of information because... Like you know, said, people doing things, making things happen is interesting. Right. Yeah. Actions, well, and, yeah. and I think that, you know, I brought a certain value to readers in the 90s and I hope beyond the 90s writing columns. I was writing some things that nobody else was writing on the internet at that time. Mm. Um, at some point, uh, the value that I could add, just, uh, I don't know if I noticed this at the time, but thinking back on it now, it certainly started decreasing quickly because there were so many more people writing the same source of things. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think even at the end of my time doing that sort of work, I could occasionally bring something to the table that nobody else was. I mean, I could come up. I could come up with an example or two, even in my last year of, of doing that, um, probably. Um, but the ability to be original and to, to bring some real value that other writers weren't bringing got tougher and tougher o- over the years. Um, and so that now the value that I try to bring is when I interview someone, am I asking something that other people aren't asking them? I hope I'm doing that when I mm-hmm. when I do interviews. Um, Ideally, what you want to come up with is um, our story ideas, for example, that nobody else is writing. Um, maybe for me, the best example is four years ago, I guess now, uh, I wrote a story about the summer when uh, Bill Murray played uh, baseball in, in the Pacific Northwest, professional baseball. Hmm. Um, bizarrely, nobody had ever written that story before. Hmm. Um, the problem is that there aren't, it's really hard to find those stories. Mm-hmm. You got to dig deep. Yeah, you have to dig deep, and then you might not. You know, you're lucky to find one a story like that once every few months, once a year. Yeah. That's that's the only story I found quite like that. I've had a few others that people have come to me with and said, "Rob, I think you should, would you write this?" You know, I wrote a story. I did a story a few years ago about Michael Jordan's summer playing baseball. Yeah, or actually, it was about his whole baseball career, which spanned roughly or almost exactly a year. Uh, Isn't this the anniversary around this time when it he was just changed? The, uh, it was just a week or two ago. Yeah. Okay. When he signed with the White Sox. Yeah. Um, so the period between when he signed with the White Sox, Birmingham, the Barons. first time, yeah. and when he announced he was going to quit baseball, which was actually in spring training the next year, because the major league players were on strike. This is in 1995 um, or ni- 95. Um, it was about a year, but somebody came to me with that story. Which again, strangely, nobody had ever quite written the the full picture before. Um, but it's tough to find those stories, and I think that I don't think I'm all that good at it. I just sort of lucked into the Bill Murray thing, and somebody came to me with the 
with the Michael Jordan story um, and a few others that I've done. Uh, you know, I'm, I can't. Let's just say this: I can't make a living coming up with great stories. I don't. I don't have that sort of brain or whatever it takes. Uh, now we're talking about like a day in and day out kind of. Right. Like, I mean, a, 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 a working journalist. Yeah. Needs to come up with compelling stories all the time. Um, or they come up with one story that's so great they can somehow justify spending two or three years writing a book about it. But I haven't found that one either. Um, so, um, you know, that's why I have to do other things. I haven't really found since I left my last job or it was taken away from me by my employers at Fox, um, I haven't found that sort of one thing that can keep me going um, year to year. So I'm just sort of moving or you know, doing these other things. Yeah, I'm um I, you know, you had these other jobs, and I know for for time purposes for the for the podcast, I want to kind of start transition a little bit into your books. Now, at what point did it they come to you that like, hey, I want to I want to write a book now, and I want this is what I want to write on, and, and kind of well, launch a career. I think I haven't met a writer yet who doesn't want to write a book. It's just sort of one of those things you're supposed to do if you're a writer, right? In fact, most people assume that if you're a writer, you must of course write books. Um, it, it's again one of the many things in my career that I've just sort of fell into uh, I remember that it, I didn't have any book ideas this is when I was at ESPN in 1998 probably I got an email out of the blue from an, from an editor who said he thought I, he, he thought I should write a book hmm. um, he had an idea for a book I should write I didn't wind up writing it I never figured out how to write it hmm. and we're still he and I became very good friends I never actually worked with him um, right around that same time an agent emailed me, a very young agent, um, emailed me and said, uh, do you have any book ideas? I didn't. Um, so he said, get back to me when you do. And around, not long after that, a friend of mine, I was talking to a friend of mine named Eddie Epstein, who's sort of a legend in sabermetric circles, uh, did a lot of pioneering work, was one of the first people who worked for a baseball team doing sabermetrics uh, back in the 1980s. Um, and worked as a cons- worked for the Orioles for years and the Padres and as a consultant for various teams. Anyway, Eddie and I used to talk quite often, and Eddie said one time we should do a book together. Okay, what? And then we thought about it, and he finally said, "Let's do a book about the greatest teams of all time." Nobody's ever sort of put that together, <laughs> and I said, okay, let's try it. And we pitched it to my agent. He pitched it to and editors, and they bought it. So that was my first book. Uh, baseball dynasties. Eddie and I did that. Came out in two thousand. And once you've done one, you just sort of feel like you should keep doing them. If somebody's going to pay you to write a book, why would you not try to write another one? Yeah, so you're, you're kind of on a roll. Right there. Ideally, right, especially if they sell decently. And mm-hmm. you know, and quite frankly, it's fairly easy to sell a book to a publisher, not necessarily to the to the to to the public, but to a publisher. When you have a significant outlet, which I did at ESPN, okay. um, it's lends it's a, a credibility. It's a lot. E- mm-hmm. Well, it isn't the credibility um, mm. so much as the commercial viability. Okay, gotcha. Uh, it's it's always been true to some degree, but it's certainly become more true with the with the internet that it, it's very difficult to sell a book to a publisher if you don't have an avenue to publicize it already in place. Right. Uh, yeah. if, you're the, if you are a tremendous writer and you come up with a great idea 
and you execute it, uh, you can sell it to a publisher. promotion. You yeah. know, uh, nobody had ever heard of Laura Hillenbrand before she wrote her book about the horse. Yeah. Right? Uh, she was an unknown. But her writing was so compelling that I doubt if it was hard for her to sell the book. And of course, once the book was published, it was a sensation. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, but most of us aren't good enough to write Seabiscuit. Uh, I'm certainly not. But I had ESPN behind me. So it was fairly easy to sell the books. You had a platform. That's yeah. right. So in pretty quick succession, um, there were, after Baseball Dynasty, there were five more. I think it's five, one, two, yeah, five more. Um, and the only reason that I stopped writing books was that right around 2007 or eight, the actual blogs had sort of taken off. <laughs> and I was a real admirer of that format. You know, writing not one 800 to 1,000 word column every day or three times a week, which I was doing by then, but five or six short things. It just seemed like it'd be fun. And I enjoyed reading them. Um, I, I mentioned to Andrew Sullivan earlier, um, I wasn't a huge fan of Sullivan's writing necessarily, but I loved what he did. I loved the way he wrote eight or 10 little pieces every day and sort of stayed engaged with the conversation, what was happening. I thought, what a fun way to experience baseball, right? And there's, Watch, a, there's a culture shift that lends itself to that too. In terms that's right. The, people's expectations. It seemed like and, there yeah. would be, right? Right. Um, and I actually asked my, my bosses it one year, one spring, I want to write blogs. And they said, uh, sorry, Buster's already going to be our blogger. And so I thought, wait, we can't have more than one? Is that Buster Posey? No, Buster Olney. Uh, Buster Olney, yeah, excuse yeah, yeah. me. I was thinking Buster, Buster right. Olney from ESPN. Um, right, gotcha. And, you know, quite He's still, frankly, still doing his thing. Yeah. Quite, yeah. quite frankly, Buster wasn't really blogging. Yeah. He was writing columns. Um, but we, they, we called it a blog at That's ESPN right. because that was the cool thing to do. And Buster outranked me. So, but then, you know, to their credit, a year or so later, they said, you still want a blog? Yeah, I still want a blog. Okay, so blog. So all of a sudden, I went for writing three columns a week, which is the greatest job in the world because you have all this free time. Mm-hmm. You don't need a whole week to write three columns, trust me. I, I know. <laughs> you have a lot of extra time, which is when I was writing my books, basically. Um, I transitioned to blogging, and what I found was that uh, blogging is a full-time job, at least if you do it the way I wanted to do it. So that meant getting up at 8 o'clock every morning and reading in the baseball news and watching all the games that I can watch on TV and then maybe staying up and watching all the games at night and writing the whole time. So. Um, there was zero time for any other writing. Um, so that's why there was a gap for a, a, a 10-year gap, basically, between oh. my sixth book and my seventh book. Okay. Well, and let's just, just take one quick moment to uh, check out the books because of your knowledge on these. Um, one, what would you say is the best baseball dynasty ever? Two, um, who would you say is, in your opinion, the best pitcher and um, what would you say is the biggest blunder of baseball? The, the, well, we, what we said in the book was that the greatest dynasty was the 1936 to 39 New York Yankees, who okay. won four World Series in a row, dominated the competition in both regular season and the postseason. I don't know if I would agree with that now. Um, the one thing we didn't really grapple with, they certainly. I think you can make a good case that they were the most dominant baseball team of all time. Were they the most talented? It's harder to say. We didn't really judge the relative competition. Maybe the National League was the better league, and the Yankees wouldn't have had that sort of record if they'd been in the National League. 
I'm not sure. Um, we, we did that book, literally, it was almost exactly 20 years ago that we were working, that, working on that book, Eddie and I. Um, and I think our methodology at the time was state-of-the-art or close to it, because we used metrics to figure out who had the best dynasties. But um, would we come up with the same answer today? I don't know. I, I sometimes talk to Eddie about. Um, maybe not. Probably not. I mean, things have, the state of analytics has changed a lot in 20 years. Yeah, the metrics will change. <laughs> yeah. all the, the Yankees numbers haven't changed, but the way we look at, yeah. at quality has changed. So they'd be in the running. Um, but that's the answer we came up with. Uh, the second greatest pitcher, uh, I think that it's hard to go wrong with Tom Seaver. Also hard to go wrong with Roger Clemens, even with all the baggage. Uh, those are tough. I think statistically Clemens passed Seaver. If we make a timeline adjustment and let Seaver pitch until he's 44, 45 years old, the, the, the way that Clemens did with whatever help he probably had, <laughs> it might look different. Seymour was a pretty good yeah. pitcher in his last season in the major leagues at 40, 40 or 41. Um, but those are the answers. Those are sort of the standard answers, Seaver mm -hmm. or or Clemens. And the third question was, I'm sorry, what was the, the last one? Uh, what was the biggest blunder you think in baseball? <sighs> wow. Uh, so as you know, I wrote a book called Rob Nyer's Big Book of Baseball Blunders. There That's were, why there I were, asked. Right. There were three <laughs> Rob Nyer big books, which is sort of a, an homage to the, the books I enjoyed reading when I was a, a little kid. And the book is has blunders made by managers, made by teams, hiring managers, made by leagues. Um, I think that the and there are blunders that I didn't write about. I didn't write about Major League Baseball's uh, uh, segregation. It's too big a story to write three, mm -hmm. three or four pages about, right? Yeah. Uh, I think that that is clearly the biggest blunder that, that, that baseball made. Now, you could argue that every other sport made it too because they did. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. But certainly if you want to go back and change history, you'd say, well, how about we let the great black players play in 1878 or mm -hmm. whenever, because whenever, there, were, there were a few in the 19th century, as you probably know. Uh, Moses Fleetwood Walker played in the major leagues um, in 1880, whatever it was, and there were two or three others. Um, but that's clearly that's that's the biggest. Um, I think among the blunders in the book, you have to, if you want to look big picture, it was baseball baseball teams colluding against the free agents in 1986 and 87. Mm. It led to a huge financial penalty, and it contributed to the. Uh, to the to the the ill feelings that continued for years, and some have argued led to the the strike in 1994. Mm -hmm. um, the relationship was so damaged by what happened in, during collusion um, that it led to the strike. I don't know if that's if that's true, um, or you can make really make that strong a connection. But certainly, the collusion cost baseball teams. Hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, it probably led to expansion in that brought baseball to Colorado and Miami, which you know people might argue is a good thing. Mm -hmm. But that expansion wasn't done because baseball said, "Hey, you know what? We got to we we, gotta, they, we should put two teams here." They did it because they they needed the money. Mm -hmm. um, that's not a really a, usually a great reason for making decisions. Yeah. I mean, you don't want to make You don't want to be forced into making a decision because you need the money. You want to do it because it's a good idea, um, and baseball's you know this sort of 
brings us full circle to baseball in Portland, which I know you guys talk about all the time. Uh, the reason I'm skeptical about expansion happening anytime soon is that historically baseball, I know this is off the subject a little bit, but historically baseball has never expanded, I don't believe once, without some external pressure to expand. It's never happened because the owners said, you know what, we really need two more teams because the fans deserve to have two more teams. Mm -hmm. They've never even said we need to expand because we want to get a few more million bucks. They've always expanded because of financial pressure or legal pressure or political pressure. It's always been one of those things. As things stand today in 2019, none of those pressures exist. Doesn't mean they won't exist at some point in the future, but right now they don't. Do you think that it could be that they're trying to like forward think on what could potentially happen like in the future? And, and let me just throw this at you. I mean, they're talking. They would be talk about um, dividing it up into um, four different divisions within the NL and in the AL. And so you would out here, you'd essentially create the old PCL. And so therefore, the travel would be less. So it'd be a less financial burden on the teams going cross country right. in Boca Fulcroft. So they'd be just kind of going back and forth up along the West Coast here. So that would clearly, one, um, help with travel. Two, probably enhance more rivalries amongst these um, these individual divisions and probably bring back some more probably populism amongst the groups in locally. Right, and I guess my answer my answer when I hear something like that, Ben, and I, I don't, I want somebody to show me the math. Show mm. me that, show me how many millions of dollars, just, just roughly speaking, how many millions of dollars baseball teams would save if they, if they, for example, save that, all that money on the travel. Because if it's a million dollars per team, that's not a compelling reason to do it. If it's 10 or $15 million per team, maybe that's compelling, I'm not sure. Mm. But I, I, I would have to see the numbers to, to, to really think that that's mm. a compelling reason to... Yeah, right. If that's the argument that's going to be made. But let me throw this at right. you, too. Could they make millions of more dollars not saving but gaining money With because the of TV rights? With, because of rivalries? Well, TV rights. Like, well, the TV rights... Because they would, could be on TV more often, probably. You're in, saying, in so because their games will be in prime time more often... They can sell the TV rights for more. Probably, they should. That is, it's a that's a great argument. I've never actually heard it. Congratulations. That I'm not saying it's original, but it's the first time I've heard it. It makes a lot of sense. If you are in, it, it's always blown my mind. Uh, for many years, the Atlanta Braves were in the National League West. They were on TV. Yes, yeah, on TV. And which meant that if you were a Braves fan, a great number of your games were being started at. 10 o'clock where you lived. Yeah. Which is obviously insane. And even today, the Astros are in the West, mm -hmm. two time zones away. So sure, the TV rights should be worth more. You, sh you should get better ratings. Um, it's a good argument. Um, again, I'd love to see the numbers. That'd be, they'd be hard numbers to crunch. There are people who could do it. Um, I've not heard anyone within baseball, Major League Baseball, make the argument, hey, you know what? If we realign, uh, not only do we spend less on travel, but our TV ratings are X percent better. But you're right. They would be better. How much better? 
I don't know. Um, There's people that can figure that out. I mean, yeah. yeah that's, you, well, you know, or, I'm or, not sure you can figure it out. Or, or well, you could least, figure it out. Or at least come up with if some you, reasonable estimation. Let's put it this way. The people who have access to TV ratings could figure it out because they know what ratings they're getting when their team is on in prime time and when mm-hmm. they're not, right? So you're right. Um, so if the, t- the, the, if the TV rights holders, they have the data, mm-hmm. and they, I'm sure they would share it with the team. So if I'm Rob, Rob Manford or anybody else who works in baseball, I would want I want to know how much more money can we make? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So it's a good point. Yeah, I'm just thinking because they could be like a Sunday night baseball on like an ESPN per se, and then the next night be prime time on the West Coast. Right. And uh, most, so I mean, you, you'd obviously want most of your games on in prime time, right? Yeah. Just like any other TV show, you want people to watch. These arguments are nil, okay. are, are really void without any solid data yeah. and solid numbers. Right, but it, but it's a good one to make, um, and it, it should it should be a factor. Um, what would the Yankees TV ratings look like, which are already pretty good, I'm sure. Actually, the Yankees TV ratings are not that good, but there are some teams that have tremendous TV ratings. Red Sox TV ratings. Oh, yeah. What do they look like if they have 120 games in the Eastern time zone in prime time as opposed to whatever it is, 80 or something? Who knows? There it is, yeah. Um, Got to be a lot better. Got to be more money there. Um, but one tricky thing is that a lot of the, um, the TV uh, deals – they have another seven years to run, right? So you have to be thinking long-term strategy. And too often in baseball history, the, the baseball has not thought about the long-term. It's how can we make the most money possible this year mm-hmm. or next year, not six years down the road. But yes, if you're having that long-term uh, perspective, you should be thinking about that, yeah. absolutely. So let's uh, let's switch into to, to today. And you know, you've um, come on board as the commissioner of the West Coast League. Uh, I looked at the uh, the announcement. It says that you know, quote, you've done a great job. How did I get? Uh, well, no, sorry, that's not it. Uh, during the announcement, the the commission, the president, Tony, I'm going to Tony Bonacci, Bonacci mm-hmm. said uh, your knowledge of the game, passion for what you uh, what you're doing, not to mention your contacts in baseball, should you help will help you elevate the league to new heights. And your, your role essentially as an arbitrator and regulate during the season uh, to further connect the league and its teams with the baseball community, its markets, and those that follow the game and act as the league's ambassador. Um, you know, what did, did you mean to you? Because obviously, clearly, you are a man who's passionate for the game. It, uh, you know, I was reading some of your book and just the, the level of effort that you put into it and the background and so on, it, it really seems to me like this is kind of like your passion of really going back to the grassroots of, of baseball and what it really looks like. This is, this is your do something. <laughs> it, it is. Uh, and it's, it, I thought of it as a tremendous opportunity. Uh, well, I, I don't want to say to give something back to the game because I, I didn't really think about it that way. I just wanted to do a good job. Um, I felt that I'd been entrusted with this responsibility to to do whatever small things I could Mm -hmm. to make this thing a little better. Um, And for me, it mostly just meant being as conscientious as I could be. Um, uh, I was hired by these then 11 teams. This is a year ago. Now there are 12 teams. Um, These 11 teams, I think... At that time, so 10 ownership groups, because we actually have an ownership group that has two teams. Um, And they gave me a job to do, to arbitrate the occasional issues, uh, appeals, 
figure out if this head coach should be suspended for three games or four games, <laughs> that sort of thing. That's part of it. Yeah. But what I also drew upon was my experience as a reporter. And the most enjoyable part of this job was traveling to all 11 of our ballparks last season, talking to the coaches on the various teams, and just trying to get a sense from the ground, from the people who were there doing it, how this league can be better. And a lot of that had to do, uh, you know, most of it has to do with the the umpiring, quite frankly, because that's where sort of, Hmm. that's where the coaches don't need me to help them coach. What I can do for for the coaches is make the the, the games a better experience on the umpiring side. Um, And that doesn't mean get better umpires necessarily. It just means make sure that we've got consistent standards. If you do this um, with this umpiring crew and the same thing with this umpiring crew, you have the same results. You get suspended or you get ejected or you don't get it, whatever it is, right? Um, And... uh, you know, you also have travel. Every coach would like to do a little bit less travel and have shorter bus rides, all that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Um, every coach wants his player to maybe to have $5 more in meal money a day, which, believe it or not, can make a difference. So just all these things. So I traveled around the league, spoke to every head coach at some point during the mm-hmm. season, took really good notes. Um, and then that gives you a framework in the offseason to go to go to the people who pay you, the owners, and say, you know, this is what I'm hearing from – and the owners have heard all these things too, but maybe not directly, or maybe not from someone who's talked to everyone. Um, one of the things you find when you're in a league like this, or any league probably, is that every single situation is different. If you're looking at it from outside, you might think, well, we got 11 teams here, again, now 12, and they're all sort of the same. On some level, they are all sort of the same, but when you actually go there, every ballpark is different. Every head coach has a different personality. Every pitching coach has a different personality. Mm-hmm. Every general manager has a different personality. Every press box is different. Uh, they're all run differently. Um, uh, so my job in my first season anyway was really just to find out how, how all this works. Who, who makes all these things go? Um, and I was able to come to the table and at our, at our winter meetings, our fall meetings and then our winter meetings. and with some perspective that I didn't have before the season. Um, and, uh, you know, the other thing that I try to bring to it is obviously the public relations piece. Uh, I try to promote the league whenever I can, do podcasts and interviews, and I'll probably do some writing um, this season. I know, I know I'll do some writing uh, this season. And again, travel to all the ballparks, um, go to meetings, meet people. Um, but really what it comes down to is um, I love baseball. I love the grassroots level that we have here. Frankly, I, at this point in my life, I probably enjoy going to a Pickles game or a Walla Walla Sweets game or a Victoria Harbor Cats game, to name just three great places to see baseball, more than going to a major league ballpark. Mm-hmm. Um, you're closer to the action. Um, it's a hell of a lot cheaper to get in the ballpark. Yeah. Um, it's... And you also, and then the other piece for me on a personal level is um, I spent decades reading about commissioners, right? I can name every major league commissioner from Kennesaw Mountain Landis through Rob Manford. Uh, have re- read all the books that those guys wrote or that have been written about them. 
And wait a second. Now at 51, when I got the job, you're going to tell me I can be a commissioner? Yeah. Who's going to say no to that, right? Yeah. I mean, it was. I wouldn't say it's a dream job because I never would have thought to dream it. But um, what an experience. Maybe I'll write a book about it someday. Maybe I won't. But uh, just as commissioner, I got to last year uh, hand out the championship trophy to the oh, cool. Corvallis so, Knights, which is something you see on TV. Yeah, and I'm cool. sitting here doing it. <laughs> Yeah. Handing the trophy over and giving a little speech, which was you know a lousy speech, but I got to do it. Uh, I got to uh, uh, throw out the first pitch at a couple of games. Again, you see it on TV, right? I, I never thought I'd get to throw out a first pitch. How fast are you throwing? Well, I didn't try to throw hard. I probably threw 50, <laughs> but they were both did, pretty good pitches. Did you hit the ball? And I was really nervous. No, I thought that I should have tried that, but I was too embarrassed. <laughs> I didn't just, end up crashing. I just days. tried to throw it, throw a good one, and I got lucky and threw a couple, couple of strikes or near strikes but that was a kick i got to be a mascot i got to be a marmot that's cool for an inning nice. oh, i've wow. always wanted to do, to do that so what did you do as a mascot so here's the thing about being a mascot uh if it's I, I think this is true of a lot of things if you've seen it happen enough times you can actually do it does that make sense yep you can't dunk a basketball unless you can dunk a basketball hmm. but uh you know how players sort of fool around when they're doing their warm-ups in, at, at a basketball game? I'll bet we could all fool around before while doing warm-ups. You mm-hmm. couldn't actually make the shot, but you could do the fooling around with yeah. the basketball and look like you knew what you were doing. Well, I've never been a mascot, but I was at the All-Star game in Port Angeles, and I went back into a, a, a room where they, a storage room uh, between innings to call my wife. And I get off the phone, and I see the mascot, uh, Lefty the Marmot, taking off the costume. And it was a kid, a high school kid. And I said, so are you taking a break? He said, no, I just do four innings. Uh, just too hot. I just do, I just do you know, maybe he, might, he might just have done like the third and the fourth inning, and that's it. And so I said, well, can I give it a shot? And the owner of the team happened to be in the room as well. He said, sure, if you want. So I put the marmot costume on and I walked around and I did what they do it was easy I was you know taking uh, pulling calves off of old men and rubbing their heads like the mascot <laughs> awesome. does and 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 playing with little kids and kissing and babies we did uh, what I ran out there was there was there were some kids out beyond the fence having a playing wiffle ball and I went out and fell on the ground and they all tickled me I mean I'm not saying I was a great mascot but I was a decent mascot Having never done it before, because I've seen so many guys yeah. do it, and it was, that was it was an amazing thing to be able to do. And uh, there's actually three or four other things over the course of the season that I was able to to do just because I was in that position that mm-hmm. I never thought I'd get to do. It was just a really fantastic experience. I don't think season two can be as much fun as season one, um, but I get to go to twelve ballparks this summer. Yeah, and uh, with the new Richfield Raptors. The Raptors. Uh, I have visit. I was there for their dedication ceremony back in, I think it was September. Uh, so I've seen the ballpark. It wasn't finished yet, but I, I have been there. Uh, but th- that's actually, I think I can, I think I can get to the Raptors ballpark at least as quickly as I can get to the Pickles uh, mm-hmm. ballpark. So I'm really looking forward to, to going to a game up in Ridgefield uh, uh, this summer, pretty early in the season. Yeah, and we had Gus on the show too, yep. so that was a great interview. Yeah, really I heard that. Awesome to speak yep, with Gus him. Gus was great. And then off, even yeah. we had Alan uh, Alan Milliner on 
on the on the show too and we look forward to having some more i think we're gonna have dan from corvallis on and we're gonna try to get john ryan on also and we're definitely looking forward to having some of the others on if uh, if they're willing to jump on the show and, and by the way one of the really the the, the the i have to say in all honesty the most rewarding thing about being commissioner was getting to meet so many great people who work in the league uh the 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 owners are all incredibly committed to community baseball these people they're not these people are not making tons of money uh not to say that some teams don't make profits because they do i think a few of them i have no idea exactly i mean i haven't seen the books but some teams make profits some teams don't but all these people are committed hyper committed to baseball Mm. in the community at this level the coaches uh, that i spoke to when you talk to them, you can tell their priority. Um, yes, they want to grow as coaches and they want to win baseball games, but they are committed to uh, making sure that their players have great experiences. Because we get these, we get these kids, many of whom are eighteen yeah. or nineteen. Most of them are eighteen or nineteen. We get them for a summer, and it's our job as a league to take care of these kids and make sure that you know. Yes, they're young men. I should say young men. Take care of these young men, uh, and make sure they have a good experience. Um, mm. So and and the all the coaches I spoke to are committed to that. The owners are committed to that. Um, and uh, the most rewarding part for me was meeting all these great people who are who are associated with the league and just wanted to want wanted to uh, get even bigger and better. Mm-hmm. So what's year two looking like for the West Coast League? Well, for me, year two um, not as much of a learning experience. Having already, sp- I think. I think almost all of our head coaches are back for year two. So That's now good. I can go to them and say, you know, tell me what you didn't tell me last year. Um, what's what's happening? What's better this year than last year when we talked? What's worse? Um, certainly Ridgefield is a big part of it. Um, the, the year two experience for me. Um, but, you know, it's a good question. I think that uh, I've got to put together a better travel schedule than I did last year. Last year I had to sort of jam in three or four teams right toward the end of the season. Um, I want to space them out a little bit better uh, this year. Um, but I think that just having familiarity, knowing the right questions to ask, is going to help me be at least a somewhat better commissioner. And the other thing is uh, I actually have taken on the responsibility this season of trying to sell some sponsorships, mm. get some you know bigger sponsors for the league. Uh, that's one of my jobs this year that I actually didn't have last year. Um, we'd love to have someone sponsor our our TV rights, for example. Right mm-hmm. now, we don't have you know an overarching sponsor. So, um, for me, year two is sort of doing some things I've never done before. I've never sold anything except myself, basically, and um, so uh, that's a big part of it too. Where's the All Star Game this year? The All Star Game is in Bend this Bend. year. We might have to venture out there. Oh, that'd be cool in the, that'd that'd be in great. the summer. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Bend in July should be should be a lot of fun. Wait, That'd so you got you have twelve teams and and you form there's two all star uh, uh, an all star team from each division. Is that how it's going to be? Or by the way, among the other things that I did last year that I never thought I'd do, I made the all star teams, huh. which is a oh. thankless job as you can imagine. Oh my goodness, yeah. Um, usually, usually you have a lot of people to blame for it. I was the only one to blame for it because I did all of it, um, and I'm going to do it this year again. You, you brought your data mindset to the party, huh? I did, uh, <laughs> and. The, the problem arises when people in the league don't appreciate the same exact data that I appreciate. Well, in baseball, traditionalists sometimes, yeah. Well, that's right. I mean, if, look, if, yeah. if you have one pitcher with a 1.92 ERA and one with a 2.84 ERA, 
most people are still going to say the guy with the 2.84 isn't as good. I'm looking at the strikeouts and the walks and the, and the home runs and thinking, oh, you know what, I think the 2.84 is having a better season. 1.92 just got a little bit luckier than the other guy. Mm. And that doesn't always go over so well. But uh, the truth is that nobody else wants to do it either. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm stuck with it again in uh, 2019. <laughs> well, if you need help with watch that. that, that's going to be interesting. <laughs> if, if you need help with that, we, you know, we'd right, be happy yeah. to I appreciate that. sit there and uh, you know, run some of the numbers anyway, for that. Yeah. And then you, we'll take the blame and you can yeah. get the credit. There we go. He's just like, blame these idiots. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we do a fan vote. I also made the, uh, worked on the schedule for this next season. That's another thing that's uh, sort of part of my job now is do this, another thankless job that nobody wants. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, be, before we close this out, I actually want to congratulate you. You are the most, you are the newest recipient of the Henry Chadwick Award. Congratulations! I I know I can congratulate you on Twitter, but I wanted to do it in person and say congratulations on your uh, award. Well, I appreciate that. It's a it's a it's a strange award. There were th- I there were three winners of the award this year, three recipients. Usually it's three or four. It has been it used to be five when we first started giving the award out. This is a, it's a Saber Award, uh, Society for American Baseball Research. Um, I never thought I would win it, and it was strange to see my f- picture between the pictures of Leonard Coppett, longtime baseball writer who is dead, and Alan Roth, longtime baseball statistician who is dead. No. Two black and white photos, and me, the one living uh, in the middle, <laughs> Creepy. Uh, does not make one feel young. I'll just put it that way. But it was a real honor. I mean, I, I, um, I am friendly with a number of people who have won it in the past, uh, and I, obviously I know the work of basically everybody else who's ever won it. So it's certainly nothing that I expected, um, but it's it's it was pretty thrilling to find out, and uh, I'm looking forward to. Uh, accepting in person at the Sabre Convention in, uh, I think, uh, late June. Cool. Cool. That'll be awesome. And, uh, again, congratulations on your award. Um, I just want to say thank you. you. You've taken a lot of time to sit down and talk with us. Yep. There's a lot. We could have gone into a lot more. Oh, yeah. um, but I, I feel privileged and honored to have uh, you available uh, to be on our podcast. So thank you so much. Yep. Oh, it's my pleasure. We Thanks may have you on again, actually. That'd be I cool. would love to come back. All right. Yeah, might even do like a travel roadshow. Maybe that'd if we cool. go to the All Star game, we can have a. Oh, that'd be cool. Yeah, have them up in the box seats. Yeah, something. Yeah, summertime yeah. in Bend. That's right. <laughs> so, um, thank you, uh, Dave. Any last questions? Uh, no. Um, again, you know, in, in terms of uh, this this connection with the West Coast League, uh, how can we how can we check out? How can our listeners check out more info on the West Coast League? the best way to access that i think that the well just go to the west coast league website which is westcoastleague.com gotcha. i think it's easy to find okay. and uh if you live near one of the teams uh check out the, you can find their website easily uh with the schedule make the it schedules. part of your summer road trip stop you know? absolutely yes. work that into your summer vacation and i will plans. say that uh yep. every literally every ballpark in the league has its its particular charms uh one of the great things about my job is getting to visit all the ballparks because uh, the ballparks are all in really wonderful places to visit uh from victoria and Kelowna up in british columbia down to bend and corvallis and everywhere in between um there all the ballparks have some real history real character a lot of them have tremendous scenery port angeles has her um Hurricane Ridge in Mount, uh, Olympic National Park is basically beyond center field. I mean, it's just a scenery-wise. I don't think there's better league in America. 
That's it. Andrew, you got any final questions? Uh, final questions. Uh, when you first got the the call, hey, you want to be a commissioner? What was your first reaction? <laughs> that must have been like amazing, like to be a commissioner. I it, honestly, my first reaction was, "Why me?" <laughs> I I, 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 I think of that every day. Why do you think I am qualified for this job? But, and to be, you know, uh, I didn't have anything else happening last summer. I had a new book coming out that it was, that I was just about to finish and was coming out, wound up coming out in October, last October. But at that point, when they offered me that job, I had basically about another mm, month and a half, two months of writing on the book, which was due literally at the publisher the day before opening day in the West Coast League. So I knew that I had nothing happening. No writing jobs, nothing um, from opening day through the end of the season, at least. Um, and as it happened, that's pretty much the way it worked out. I didn't have any other work to do. Uh, I'm probably forgetting something that I did last summer, but it wasn't important. Apologize to anyone I, I, that I did do work for. It, it really was important, but I just don't remember right now. Um, the so I had the whole summer, and uh, it was either take this job for which I'm utterly unqualified, or I don't know. So I took the job, and now I'm coming back. Oh, awesome. Back. Well, folks, that is Rob Nyer, Commissioner West Coast Baseball League. Check him out, westcoastbaseball.com, I believe. We'll, and be, we'll be checking West, uh, West Coast Baseball out this summer. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Travel and Roadshow. Um, I'm Ben. I'm Dave. I'm Andrew. And I am still Rob Nyer, and thank you for having me. Thank, thank you. you. And that'll do it for this episode. We'll be back. You take care. Peace out.